0: and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our podcast is featured on the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV, you may find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle or me at leadersandlegends.net. And as always... All our podcast interviews are dedicated to the legacy and generosity of P.E. McAllister. Howie Politics and State Affairs Pro offer insider election coverage, polling and analysis in Indiana. Our nonpartisan news and legislative tools
1: create a winning combination pro subscribers can't live without. For all the
0: resources you need this election season and beyond, visit pro.stateaffairs.com I-N. That's
2: com slash I-N.
0: Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guests today are Dr. Owen Emerson. He is a social and cultural historian, the author of three books, a contributor to a number of television documentaries. He also works as castle historian and assistant curator at the stunning Ever Castle in Kent. And that's England to all you Yanks. He is also the co founder and a primary contributor to Ever Castle's online subscription service, Inside Ever Castle. Our other guest is Kate McCaffrey. She is the assistant curator at Ever Castle. She completed her master's degree with distinction in medieval and early modern studies at the University of Kent. So there's two of us who can pay the bills with a master's degree in medieval history. Uh, they are active and they're delightful on social media, which is how I quote unquote met them. You should definitely follow them both if you want beautiful pictures of the castle on the grounds and and updates on their research and just the, the beauty that is British history. Dr. Emerson's Twitter handle is at Dr. Owen Emerson, two M's. And Ms. McCaffrey's is at Kate, with two E's, McCaffrey. And before I get started, I want to shout out to two people. One is the wonderful Helen Francis, who is uh, does the PR work there at the castle, which is what I do for a living here in Indianapolis. She was wonderful and she was kind. We wouldn't have had this interview without her. And second, I'm going to thank Dr. Susanna Lipscomb, because- A year or two ago, I can't remember which, she answered my email from out of the blue to say, hey, please come on my podcast. And she did. And that has opened the floodgates for so many wonderful, wonderful historians whose names I'll mention later in the podcast. And so, Dr. Lipscomb, thank you so very much for your kindness in coming on. And I must say hello to you both from Gareth Russell. I oh. just posted a podcast with him a couple of days ago regarding his book on the Titanic. He said you both are wonderful and to tell you hi. Oh,
1: love that. We love Gareth.
0: So hi back. So <laughs> his, his books are amazing. I've read oh. three of them and they're just terrific. So let's start. It's it's April. We're not that far away. Um, Kate, we'll start with you. What are your hopes and expectations for the upcoming coronation of King Charles III.
1: Oh goodness, I am incredibly excited to witness it. Um, It's—I would say it's a once-in-a-lifetime. I'm not sure if it will be actually for us, but it's a very <laughs> <You're> special, <young. laughs> very special experience. Obviously, we've not seen one in so many years. Um, after Queen Elizabeth II reigned for so long, um, but but yeah, it's going to be an incredibly historic uh, occasion. So. I, we have it as a bank holiday here. Usually I actually work bank holidays here at the castle, but we have it off. I have it off specifically so that we can watch it. Um, and yeah, I think it's just going to be a magnificent occasion. I'm excited to see the pomp and the ceremony and the history to see what they include, to see what they deliberately don't include in comparison to previous uh coronations. I think uh word on the grapevine is that Charles is adjusting certain things to maybe modernise it slightly. So be very interesting to see what he chooses to um, exclude in that vein. But but it's certainly going to be a, a very historic occasion. And as historians, that's what we live and breathe. We're watching living and breathing <laughs> history. So it's very, very exciting.
0: And here in the States, you know, every four years, it's the same thing. Like, you know, there's not that much, <laughs> <Exactly>. there's not <laughs> much um, mystery. <laughs> Owen, go ahead. What are you looking for? And what do you hope to see both as a Brit and as a historian? So
2: I'm very much like Kate in that. My, my main focus, I think, will be on looking at the, the changes. Um, I think one of um, our monarchy's key to success is by suggesting that there is this enormous amount of continuity with the past. Whereas, in fact, actually, um, I would argue that that's slightly a myth and that monarchy has been continually evolving and shifting and changing. Uh, very subtly, often lagging perhaps with behind popular uh, opinion. Um, but it is a, a sort of a living and breathing institution, and it has shifted enormously over time. So although there is this amazing sense of continuity with the coronation, um, there is also a huge amount of change. So actually, if someone from 500 years ago were to attend Charles's coronation, I think they would um, understand uh, all of the principles and all of the gestures, um, but it would seem quite foreign to them also. And I love that about um, history. I love studying uh, continuity and change. That's that's sort of the ingredients of what we uh, look out for, as it were.
0: Do you believe this coronation will be more like William the Fourth as opposed to George the Fourth? Oh,
2: that's a very good question. Um, I think it's probably going to be less stripped down than we have been led to believe it's going to be. Um, I mean, part of the pomp and ceremony of uh, coronations. Um, is is necessarily quite expensive. <laughs> um, so I should think it's going to be quite a costly affair. Mm. Uh, it probably quite won't be quite as ostentatious um, as uh, correlations of the past. Um, but I'm I'm I suppose I'm more fascinating in um the the shifting symbolisms um and, and what they what they mean, what they're trying to speak to in today's society. Um, so that that's going to be really
0: fascinating to study actually do you anticipate disruptions i've had a, a a fellow on named christopher anderson and he wrote a biography of charles iii and he came on my podcast i don't know if you know christopher he'll actually be over there doing commentary i offered to do his dry cleaning or whatever it took to be over there and <laughs> i don't think he has the budget but he i'm going to hold the podcast with him until closer to the coronation do you think there's a chance to have some drama one way or the other and how do you think the brits will react to that
1: i think i think there'll definitely be drama involved i think where the royal family go drama tends to follow in some way shape or form i think obviously the most topical drama will probably be around the attendance or the non-attendance of um, harry and megan um, and i think it'll be interesting to see if they if they show up and obviously they've been invited um, and I think the media um, will certainly jump on that. But I think there'll definitely be an element of drama and there'll, there'll be controversy as well. You know, there, there always will be with things like this in terms of, again, I think, especially at the moment, how much money is being spent on the coronation, um, how popular it is. You know, there's always interesting debate about these kinds of big topics. But I think for the most part, the feeling in the country is one of excitement just because we've, it's not been seen in, in so long for most of us.
2: I think i think there will definitely be a um probably a republican presence mm-hmm. um that that has always been present in in uh, english society and it will be a, a, an optimum um opportunity to voice that opposition so I, I don't necessarily know if that will be a drama however i, I our, our press is quite good at spinning things <laughs> and so i very much expect that if there is any drama like kate it will be to, to you know with regard to harry and megan
0: um, the leveler the levelers aren't still hanging around anywhere
2: <laughs>
0: it will, it's going to be really interesting because they do seem to be trying
2: to avoid controversy at every opportunity and um, so for example I, I read recently that the queen will not be holding the ivory rod um that is normally held um and of course we know that she is going to be wearing Queen mary's crown as opposed to having her own crown fashioned or indeed wearing the crown of um the late um queen elizabeth queen mother um so therefore avoiding the the famous cone or diamond um, so they do appear to be trying to um get some good pr going before before the fact
0: helen francis they need you call <laughs> absolutely okay kate and I want to put you on the spot. That's what we do here in the States. If you were in charge, would you invite Harry and Meghan?
1: Oh my word. Um, I think I would. I think it's the diplomatic thing to do. Um, I think it would probably cause more drama if they were not invited. I think it would give the press and a lot of other people the opportunity to. Really spin stories about mm. that. um I think it's quite clever in that it puts the ball in their court, uh, and then it's their decision whether or not they want to come. um so, so yeah, I think I think personally, I probably would. I don't know what you think. Uh, if
2: I if I was in charge, I would invite them and crown them, and then <laughs>
0: cause a hell of a fuss. <laughs> I love drama. <laughs> yeah, there's me. no substitute for class. You invite yeah, them. Don't, and... don't put me in charge. Whatever you do. <laughs> Are the uh, one Sorry. more question on this topic before we get to? Are you guys either one of you working TV or radio or anything for it? I know Tracy Borman and several other historians are doing quite a bit.
2: They are. No, thankfully, I have been um, uh, overlooked, uh, <laughs> which is good because oh my goodness, I don't think I could tell you half of things. I'd be really good at, at giving commentary of an early modern. Program.
0: Yes,
1: so, yeah. But things have changed quite, quite a bit. And no. I'm
0: not very good at names with the family either. No. say so, I think and we're happy to be watching from the sofa, <laughs> I think. Yeah. Tracy Borman is a machine.
1: Oh my god. and am a monarchy. She's an expert on, on all monarchs at this point. Yeah. So no, she's she's stellar.
0: One more question on this before we move on. Is 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 Kate Middleton, the princess of Wales, is she as popular in Britain? As she seems to be from across the pond, she seems to be the queen of of British Twitter and fashion and parenting. And she she obviously does a a, a mar- She's a beautiful woman, of course, but she does a marvelous job of of having that common touch, which obviously flows for her veins through her veins, given you know her her modest upbringing. Mm-hmm. Is she just that popular?
1: I think it depends who you ask um, here. I think she has a lot of fans here, definitely. And I think a lot of people are enthused by the younger generation of the royal family, by Kate and William and by their their family unit. Um, but I still think, you know, there are those people here, as I'm sure in the US, who prefer Harry and Meghan to Kate and William and this kind of weird sort of divide that's been created. So I think it does depends who you ask, but she, but she is... I think people like to think of her as a sort of people's princess, really, and I think there's a lot of Diana imagery that's often used mm. um, when looking at Kate in current kind of society.
2: Yeah, it's a really strange. Um, one, I completely agree with what Kate says. I think there is this um, almost encouraged false dichotomy between, um, you know, being pro Kate or pro pro Megan, mm. which isn't particularly helpful to either of them, I don't think. Um, but Kate's actually had quite a, quite a difficult time with the, the press. Um, quite often, she is called bland and you know unimaginative, and um, and I think actually that's probably helped to um, sort of consolidate some some support for her because the general public tend in England and the, the wider United Kingdom to like an like an underdog. Um, mm. Um, particularly when the, the press can be vicious and show their teeth um i think it can yeah sort of consolidate some some support uh, amongst people that wouldn't naturally be supportive i think so um yes i i it, i don't think we ever get to know these people to be honest it's mm, it's so um it's so superficial we're always seeing them through uh um, a very specifically uh, tilted, lens. yeah, curated yeah. lens, and, and and particularly skewed ones too. Um, so yeah, I'd be very intrigued to um, sort of get to know
0: them on a different basis.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: you know? yeah. Did you? You're listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. We're talking to Dr. Owen Emerson and Kate McCaffrey. They work at Evers Castle in Great Britain. It's a beautiful place, and we're talking all things. Coronation and monarchy in history. They're very kind. They've stayed late at their place of work out there in Kent, England, to talk with us. Uh, let's talk history and historians for a while. Uh, there's a terrific. When I was in graduate school, which was 25 years ago, you know, there was a lot of Jeffrey Elton, Scaresbrick, uh, uh, Warren. You know, those were the folks. My my graduate thesis was actually on Sir Thomas Irpinham, who was the commander of the archers at Agincourt. And so there were a lot of, a lot of older Anne Curry who's not older, but I mean, she was, there weren't that a lot of uh, sources that you could get here in Indianapolis about it. She kind of relied on it in the last few years decades, maybe there's been a terrific new cadre, especially of female historians in British history, military historians, Tudor Stewart, especially I'm mentioning. Uh, I mentioned Susanna Lipscomb. I just mentioned uh, Tracy Borman. Uh, Nicola Tallis, Helen Carr who I'd love to have on the podcast, uh, Sarah Gristwood who did come on, everyone's been on except Miss Carr. Uh, what perspectives do the female historians bring to to mod, to a modern study of of a glorious past?
1: I think absolutely crucial ones. I'm very lucky to be entering this field at a time where there are as you say so many brilliant female voices uh, being heard at the moment over the last 10-20 like, years particularly. Uh, I think history as with most things for many many generations was dominated by men and by male voices. It was often through the male voices that we learned about history. I think half of that comes from the fact that the sources we refer to especially when you're looking at early modern or medieval history were often written by men. Uh, mainly because of educational differences and literary differences and opportunities that were given to men that weren't to women. So I think to that extent you know we, we can't separate uh, gender from history but but looking at it now with the female voices that are coming through, I think it just brings a whole new range of perspectives and and we're very lucky that uh, not just with diversity in uh, male and female historians, but with diversity um, across race and across sexuality with historians and all sorts of different, Um, areas, there's a really wonderful increase in new voices being heard. And I think that's translated actually a lot into the work that we're lucky to be a part of, which is re-examining characters in the past that we think we know a lot about, Uh, like Anne Boleyn, who is obviously the uh, heroine of our castle where we Um, work, and looking at her with a different lens. I think that helps when you have new voices in the present to apply to old figures in the past. Uh, it's it's incredibly helpful and inspiring for me personally as a young woman entering this
0: field. And they're just delightful people, besides being yeah. utterly brilliant. Oh, and yeah. go ahead.
2: Yeah, no, I I
0: absolutely agree with everything that Kate has just
2: said. Though, um, was the very very fortunate recipient of um some amazing uh, women who worked at the University of Sussex, where I completed all three of my degrees. I was supervised by an extraordinary um, uh, woman called Professor Claire Langhammer and uh, Professor Lucy Robinson. um, And they completely revolutionised how I see the past. Um, I think one of the ways in which, you know, you can get that sort of grounding that's necessary to, to get a different perspective is just by understanding that women's lives were often chronicled by men, they were then archived by men, they were summarised by men. And actually, um, it, it gives you far more of an impetus to go back to original sources and to try and fill the, the gaps in, um, in a way that, you know, traditional narratives just didn't even think to consider. I mean, if, if for example, if we look at, just the 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 collective works um the focus on the six wives of henry viii we only ever see the wives through the economy of being married to henry actually historians over the last 20 30 40 years chiefly women have been liberating these women from uh only being uh bound by um their collective husband um, Mm -hmm. and actually thinking about who they were as people Uh, what they brought to the table, what kind of agency they uh, enacted, and what kind of change uh, came about because of their efforts. And it's a really, really exciting time because we're often being told that there's nothing new to focus on, particularly with Anne Boleyn, because she is such a sort of redolent um, and often uh, explored character. But actually, I think we're just getting to the tip of the iceberg with these women. Um, and I'm thoroughly enthused to be working amongst some of the most uh, talented women uh, and scholars I've you know
0: ever known I get beat up by some of my friends because I don't read fiction <laughs> uh, and I always say if I want murder sex romance betrayal I just read about the tutors. <laughs> Now, I'm sure I am missing some things, but in your research, if you could solve any mystery in British history, which one would you solve?
1: I don't know why, and this is a controversial one, but why my mind immediately goes to the princes in the tower. tower. (laughs) (laughs) And I know there are lots of... uh, you know, really loud voices in that um, field and and, and lots of loud opinions in that. But I think it really is one of the greatest mysteries because I don't know if we'll ever find the answer. Um, And I love the ideas, you know, that have been floated about maybe one of them escaping and coming back and we have those impersonators in Henry VII's reign like like in Warbeck and Mm. Lambert Simnel and if they were one. Um, And I think probably the the most obvious answer is maybe just staring us in the face that, that, you know that we'll never find them and that they did die in the tower, but it's it's a brilliant mystery in that I think it has all of those elements of, of a drama today and of a murder mystery today um, from the even just the evil uncle who's involved quote unquote evil uncle by the way
0: yes um, I don't know if the Richard the Third Society listens to my podcast so I don't want to get <laughs> angry letters but there were two bodies that were found in the tower my understanding is and I. Th- I think that maybe uh, Dr. Tallis and I discussed this, or maybe we all did, is that Queen Elizabeth has refused to have any examination, mm-hmm. but King Charles III is said to be open to it. Do you think that he will do so? What do you hope to discover, Kate, if there is this forensic examination?
1: Well, I think it's it's a really interesting idea, especially coming off the back of the recent research done by members of of um, the Richard III Society, Philip Langley in particular, and obviously the team of archaeologists who worked alongside them. But those who recovered Richard III's body from the car park in Leicester, which is just a marvelous story, um, but that I think sets a, a really interesting precedent, obviously, of um, you know uncovering these bodies and, and kind of finding out more information from them, but. I would be very surprised if Charles uh, did uncover these bodies and do testing on them. Um, I think it it opens up a can of worms, uh, you know, legally and um, ethically. uh, And and to be honest, I don't know if it would give us a, a satisfying conclusion. I think there would still be many questions on if those two bodies are indeed the two princes. It still doesn't necessarily answer who is responsible for their murder. And there's still so many questions around that. So I would, I'd be intrigued, but I would be very surprised if anything happened with it. Oh,
0: and what mystery would you solve? That's not the princes in the tower.
2: Oh, see, I've never really been that interested in mysteries.
0: Weirdo. I know, I know. Oh, I, I should rephrase that.
2: <laughs> never really been um interested in sort of like the classic mysteries. Um, I do like a good, like, Mystery novel, um, and I love a murder mystery. Um, but in terms of, I mean, yeah, I've never really fixated. I, th- I think my the mysteries that I'm interested in are absences from the historical record rather than sort of um, you know who done it. Um, so Good. one of the biggest mysteries for me is that why what, what was in Boleyn's letters to Henriette. That's one of my enduring fascinations.
0: Um, because we Did have she sleep with her, her brother?
2: brother. <laughs> oh, no, I, d- I definitely don't <laughs> she's with no, her brother. No, no, no. <laughs> um, um, so, yeah, that, it, it's things like what, what was said in, in that room at that time. For example, we know that um, Anne agreed perhaps to an annulment of her marriage before she was executed. What was said to her to convince her? of that and did she agree on um, you know there are a little um which you know
1: that's that
2: mean need filling. filling that fascinate me i find those like enduring mysteries rather than um you know who, who killed who yeah
0: has anyone figured out stonehenge yet
1: see that's another good one <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> They're the real ancient mysteries.
0: Yes. There's yeah. so
1: many. There's so many to to look at. So I think that's part of the fascination of modern audiences today with history and with all different eras. But particularly, I think there's so much interest popularly today around the Tudor era, just because, as you said, it's got all the drama of a modern soap opera. Yeah. Like, what more do you need?
0: I can't. I can't think of it. Uh, so, Owen, who killed the the princes in the tower? <laughs> oh, oh, figure this out. Richard the
1: third,
2: definitely definitely
1: they're gonna come no not definitely know. not definitely
0: <laughs> but I I
2: read you know it's Occam's razor isn't it I think um I'm often asked by people who don't think it's him you know what what precedent is there for him doing something that you know awful um and I think usurping the throne taking it away from you know two young children sort of is in that vein you know he, I don't think he thought much of taking the crown away from them um And, yeah, I I, I would be surprised if it
0: wasn't. Kate, are you on team Owen?
1: I think there's a lot of nuance there. I'm going to try and give a diplomatic answer. (laughs) Uh, No, I think, to be honest, as with most mysteries in history, the answer is often staring you in the face. I think that's probably the case with this as well, and that Richard is the most likely culprit, I think. I like the theories about the other people involved, um, but I don't know really what what they have backing them in terms of historical evidence i think that richard is the most likely um, but i enjoy the discussion around it
0: definitely yeah they have uh, the tudor period started in 1485 after the battle of bosworth which i hope to go see sometime soon uh, bosworth is both a seminal and a watershed battle in english history but is it bigger than that what did bosworth and the tudors bring to england That didn't exist before their dynasty?
1: That's a very interesting question. Um, I think Bosworth and the Tudors obviously come on the back of many, many, many years of the Wars of the Roses and all the instability and insecurity and danger that came with that in terms of not knowing who was the monarch, whether it came from the Lancaster line or the the York line. Um, And I think. Although their claim was probably more tenuous than most, Henry VII's claim was quite tenuous and came largely through his mother through an illegitimate line. Um, he, I think, did manage to bring a certain amount of stability after a very long period of turmoil, particularly through his marriage, obviously, to Elizabeth York and kind of uniting the two warring houses. Um, so I think stability is something that he brought, but it was at a big cost, and it wasn't overnight. It came uh, in gradual shifts, and it meant that he had to eliminate, quite ruthlessly, lots of uh, people who dared to either challenge him or also have a claim to the throne that may be considered um, competitive to his own. So I think that that's uh, a big thing that they brought in terms of symbolically bringing to an end these years of warfare and civil war. but it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't a quick
2: process, was it? No, and I think I think the Tudors more broadly can, you know, they they bring a, a sense of national identity that probably didn't exist before, and also um, a myth of independence, um, particularly with the break in the church in, in Rome. Um, this idea of um, the monarch being an emperor and um, looking, I suppose, outward, independent. Um, I think that still exists to a degree. I don't mm-hmm. think you can explain our break from uh, the European Union without understanding the sort of precedent that um, occurred during the Tudor era, this um, both inward and outward-looking sort of perspective um, that very much characterises um, the Tudor era, I think. Um, and more broadly, you know, Establishment of a, of a navy and um, huge shifting cultural changes. This is the first era in which we know what people looked like because they uh, had a sense of realism about their, their approach to art that perhaps didn't exist in earlier generations. I think, yeah, there, there is a sense of closeness to this era. Um, and I, I don't think if any. Sort of surprise that they are an enduring part of our cultural and educational environment today. Um, they are they are well up there on the syllabus aren't they and, and on the entertainment.
1: And I think they, they sort of coincide with and also spur on those kind of huge cultural movements that were happening in Europe at the time, like the Renaissance, you know, the advent of the printing press in the West kind of coincides with their um coming to power so there's all these these huge transitional shifts that are happening at the same time as their uh, dynasty which they helped to to further on but also um which which helped them to further on it's a yeah. brilliant kind of coinciding so so it's a key you know 100 200 years of change um with or without them
0: you are listening to leaders and legends a podcast presented by veteran strategies an indiana based public relations enterprise And sponsored by Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. We are just talking history with Owen Emerson and Kate McCaffrey of Ever Castle. Is there a particular American leader or legend you admire most, Kate?
1: Oh goodness, for put me on the spot? Um, I've studied, I studied a lot of um, the American civil rights movement during school, and I think someone who stands out as an obvious is Martin Luther King Jr. Um, you know, his speeches and his oration and his words, I think, are some of the most powerful in the 20th century. Um, I was also really interested, coinciding with that, in Robert Kennedy and Bobby Kennedy um, and, again, his power of words uh, and and the the phrases that he used to inspire these kinds of huge cultural shifts and movements. So in terms of, yeah, a recent kind of American figure, I think they're the two that I'd go back to. And I think the power of words is something that I'm always drawn to in history, be that from 800, 500, 100 years ago, um, the the power of words to change things and to move people across time um, and that kind of enduring movement as well, to hear words now that were spoken 50 years ago, 100 years ago or longer and to still feel moved by them today, I think is something really incredibly powerful and I feel that certainly when I look at at words from from people like Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy.
0: Owen? I'm
2: going to go for like a curveball Um, And it's someone that I talk fairly regularly to with Gareth Russell. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm going to say Margaret Brown, who is better known as the the famous Molly Brown, who um, was a passenger on the Titanic and who was rather impressive on the Night of the Sinking, I think. And there's been a huge mythology built up around her um over the centuries. I mean she's starred in her own musical and um has had whole books written about her and plays and she's featured in many many films. Um I I find her absolutely fascinating and I I really I really love looking at um what people do in in times of peril, how they react and what kind of um Legacy they live behind, um, and
0: I think she's got quite an impressive one. And why is she for the for the audience of leaders and legends? Why is she known as the unsinkable? Uh, so she's known
2: as the unsinkable Molly Brown because she essentially refused to um, do what she was told in the lifeboat. Essentially, um, she um, was very keen to return uh, and pick up. Um, those who were very tragically flailing in the icy cold waters of the Atlantic and um, she overrode, I think it was Hitchens who was in command of her lifeboat Um, and she also mustered um, the women to row uh, alongside her and I think she took the tiller at one point as well Um, so yes uh, there's you know, there's a quite a contrast to my answer to Kate. This isn't someone who is known uh, for their political power, um, but I, I quite often like looking at more ordinary um, acts of heroism. Um, Social history. Yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: we were discussing Richard III, who uh, was hacked to death at Bosworth, uh, deservedly so. I may say from this from this person's opinion, just based on the just based on the princes alone. Uh, what, do you, which which British monarch do you believe had the most unjust and gruesome death? Owen. Oh gosh, unjust, unjust and gruesome death. Hmm. Maybe it was oh gruesome God. and not unjust. Maybe it was yeah. unjust but not gruesome. Who's the one that had a uh, poker shot
1: up mm-hmm. Edward the no.
0: yeah, second yes. yeah. yeah. I mean that it's
2: not a nice way to go. That is, is gruesome. It? Um and I can't I can't think of many ways to justify that.
0: <laughs> so well Mel, well, Mel Gibson and Braveheart basically just sealed Edward the second's reputation forever. Yes. Yeah. Yes, they no, definitely say. That's
2: a
1: good one. I think I, yeah. Sorry, we're, we're, we're hilariously and, and awfully really inventive, I think, with our methods of torture. The Brits have been in the past, yeah. and the English <laughs> have been in the past. I mean, he's not a monarch. He was never a monarch, but one that always sticks in my mind as well is George Duke of Clarence, who's oh, the yes. brother of Richard. The,
0: the Malmsey wine?
1: Yes, yeah, drowning in, himself in, in the barrel of Malmsey wine, which, again, is such a, a, just a bit of an iconic story, really. Gruesome, but, but what a way to go, I think some people might think. Um, it's just <laughs> fabulous tales like that. You
0: Catherine. may have been drunk before you were drowned.
1: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And of injustice, again, not monarchs necessarily, but consorts, obviously. But Catherine Howard and are two hugely yeah. unjust um, deaths there, I think, massively so, in the executions.
0: Yeah. Which monarch do you believe is due for a reappraisal by historians?
1: That's a really brilliant question. And I think a lot of monarchs have been, certainly in the Tudor era, have been undergoing this kind of reappraisal in the last 20-odd years. One who stands out to me, um, but who is someone who has already begun their renaissance and their reappraisal very much so is obviously Mary the First and Bloody Mary, Mm -hmm. quote-unquote, that she's maybe known uh, more popularly as. Um, But that's, I think, someone who has a very... Uh, set reputation um very negative gruesome reputation uh that is deservedly being um overturned by um a range of wonderful historians um past and present and i think that's that's one that stands out to be from the tudor era but i think the Stuarts deserve a bit yeah, more stole, attention art, <laughs> <I'm> sorry, but... <laughs>
2: well
0: henry henry <laughs> the first is henry the first is my favorite monarch oh, yes, and yes. Um, I'm waiting for a a new, I know there was the biography a long time ago of him, which I read. It's it's a brick, but it's worth reading. I'm hoping for a new one soon. So the Stuarts all seem like just complete knuckleheads to me, (laughs) drunk, whores, liars, even though I am Catholic. So I guess I'm a Jacobite. Actually, my family (laughs) did flee England because we were Jacobites. So all the veins of the 16th and 17th, 18th century, those were all my uh forebears Um uh, oh and go ahead you want to stick up for the stewards yeah i just
2: you know i i think we we have those tropes very much set in our our minds i think particularly here in the uk we've had um sort of an, an overload i would i would guess by the time you get to adulthood of different interpretations and nuanced interpretations of who the tutors were and what they did and um, their legacy. Whereas I think with the Stuarts, you have a much more cursory understanding of their um, significance to, to the historical debate. Um, and I uh, also I think they need a cultural renaissance yeah. because they're very rarely depicted on our television screens. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm sure a number of those tropes are true. Um, but you very rarely get a sense of these people as, as people. Um of their everyday lives, of their loves, of their um passions. Um so yeah, I'd I'd love to see a, a bit of a steward Renaissance. to be honest. Putting myself out of the job here. These
0: these these are simple yes or no's. Are you ready? I mean, oh, maybe okay. not simple, but I think they'll be relatively easy, perhaps. Would you have voted to execute Charles the First?
2: No. No, I, I I don't like capital punishment. So.
0: Agree. Yeah. Would you have voted to execute Anne Boleyn?
1: No, no. big no.
0: <laughs> That's what we call in the United States a layup.
1: <laughs> would, you,
0: would you have voted to execute Catherine Howard? No, no,
1: no, no.
0: no. no. What about uh, any of uh, Henry VIII's religious advisors, Sir Thomas More, or? No, no,
1: no. These are boring answers from us, maybe, but yeah. no.
0: <laughs> Would you have voted to execute? Did I already ask you this? Catherine Howard.
1: No, no I, w- I wouldn't. No,
0: much. no. She's I- a bit of a tart.
1: No, no, <laughs> no. We can't judge her from you know five hundred years ago standards. No, nobody deserved the axe. I don't think.
0: Would you have voted to execute Mary, Queen of Scots?
1: No. No, but I understand in a way why it was why it was done.
2: I'd
0: have given her a really, really lavish prison. <laughs> Susanna Lipscomb got all fired up. She goes, "Dave executed her for treason. She's not a she's not English. What are you? She's not from there. What, what's the point? <laughs> and, uh, it, it's complete. It's complete hogwash,
2: isn't it? it is. mean, how how." Could she have committed treason if she wasn't a citizen? It's just a, it's a, a amazing uh, example of how our treason laws have shifted mm-hmm. and changed over time, um, to you know the the whims of the monarchs that who've overseen their definition. Um, quite agree.
0: I wish Mary Queen of Scots had social media, <laughs> she she is led she led the one of the most star crossed lives of anyone i've ever encountered in my reading you feel sorry for, i mean i do i just feel sorry for her at a certain point i mean you just yeah. bad decision after bad decision mm-hmm. um, would you have voted to execute lady jane gray no, no no poor
1: lady jane
0: That's you guys are softies
1: i know yeah. <laughs> really
0: really yeah, are. yeah. dr tallis's book on lady jane gray was amazing amazing i didn't know anything about her before i read it nothing absolutely at all other than you know supposed to be the nine-day queen but apparently the 13-day queen uh-huh. in the book was fabulous um so you'd you'd let her go too oh
1: yes it's, yeah absolutely we'd let her off
0: yeah i'd probably give her a crown back as well she can yeah. be, be co regnant <laughs> do you think that she should have been queen after edward the No, I, think, I don't no. think she should have been though i mean Oh, it's it's yeah, so yeah. complex. I think if I think if
2: Edward had ratified yeah. his device for the succession with Parliament, um, he'd have had justification. But he didn't, so therefore, it really it's came down to who who could, could control the country, um, and that was Mary.
0: If you could go back in time and box the ears of any English or British monarch, other than Henry the Eighth, damn it. Yeah. Whom oh. would you choose um, if Henry you're going to let all the if you're going to let Bolin and Howard and all these people off the hook? Then I know you're going <laughs> to choose Henry VIII. So <laughs> let's say Henry is a bonus. Choose someone else. I've got to box the ears. I, I have no choice.
1: Richard the Third. Good a one. bad guy. Maybe bad King John. We we'll love to still call him bad King John. Um, <laughs> yeah.
2: he's, a, he's a good one. Yeah, probably just some random person who murdered someone or something.
1: Was that was probably most of them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think most yeah. of them. Yeah, I'd go for John, yeah. John or Richard III, I think. I just indiscriminately
2: choose a murderer. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't <sour> it down. <laughs> yeah.
0: You may have already answered this question for sure. One of my uh, uh, doctor on my uh, professor Sheila Cooper on my thesis committee would go on and on about, and it wasn't, obviously, I was researching stuff that happened in the early 15th century, late 14th century. But she would go on and on on how the Stuarts were the most important and impactful dynasty in British history. Whom would you choose for that title?
2: Mm.
0: You can say obvious. Stuarts. I'm just saying that it was very interesting that she was yeah. she was adamant that Stuarts changed British history more than any other dynasty.
1: I mean, it's. I think it's really hard to predictably go past the Tudors if we're purely looking at it from the point of view of the break with Rome, which I think was yeah. one of the biggest shifts this country has ever had. And like Owen said, has echoes through to current politics today. I think that was arguably one of the most transformative things that any monarch has ever done, um, which would, would indicate the Tudors. But I don't know. I think even the most recent generation, you know, the Windsors. Yeah. you uh, have been hugely transformative in terms of how much has changed under their rule. Oh I don't
0: know, God, I this see, is so
1: tricky. The cogs are turning. I, can see it.
0: I want to yeah. say uh, Dr. Gristwood said the Windsors, I yeah. think, which took yeah. me a little bit by surprise.
1: Yeah, you know, it's, they've seen so much change over the course of however long, 150 years it's just been unreal um, but then victoria as well they all have they all have huge transformations happen underneath them
2: again this, yes, this is the thing that i think the further you, away you get from absolute monarchy the harder it is to um credit them credit okay. them with mm. <laughs> the changes in which happened
0: during their tenure it's really it's a really difficult one um, but so many of them followed history and very yes. so, and others create. I mean, Henry the created history, yes, whether exactly. you like it or not.
2: Oh. Yeah, no yeah. Problem. I think I'll have to stick with Tudors. And just to glean back some of those points I lost when
0: I started. <laughs> <laughs> what is your favorite movie about British history?
1: I think we'll have the same answer. No, it's on the it's on the screen in the background. Yeah, it's probably is
0: probably Anne of a Liana,
2: the Thousand Days. I love it so
0: much i've not seen it but it's on my it's on my list to see Uh, i haven't seen it but i want to see it i actually did a podcast with a a lady named kate anderson brower and she just wrote a brand new biography of elizabeth taylor she's the daughter of christopher anderson who i mentioned a few minutes ago and her biography elizabeth taylor is magnificent and so it made me think about wanting to um, watch that movie kate you choosing the same one
1: I think I think I'd have to. It's it's the film that I know made both Owen and I fall in love with this time period and fall in love with Anne and probably is a large part of why we both work where we work today. So yeah. I think it'd be rude to not choose it.
0: It's a really problematic movie. Yes. It, you know, is it? Let me ask you a question because I'm going to ask you. I was going to ask you it in a few <laughs> minutes, but you just said that, so I'm going to ask it now if that's okay. How do you? And I've asked. Um, Tracy and and, and um, Sarah and Suzanne and Gareth, everybody, uh, Nicola, uh, how do you as historians watch movies without just beating your head against the wall? Some, a friend of mine said, man, I'd like to watch Braveheart with you. And I laughed and I go, no, you wouldn't. I'm yeah. like, well, why not? I'm like, because that movie is so off. It's way, way, it's amazingly entertaining. But as history, it's basically a F. Yeah. How do you watch movies and and go, well how do I look past this error or this artistic <laughs> license?
1: You have to, you have to separate it um, in order to still enjoy it. And I think I used to be very much in the vein of, I would actually, and I still do sometimes enjoy watching films. So I know will make me angry at how historically inaccurate <laughs> they are. Cause I like to get riled up by them. Um, but there are, there are those like Anna thousand days where personally, as long as you can separate sort of as a disclaimer, almost before you watch the film, separate the fact from fiction and enjoys the work of fiction, um, then I think you can enjoy the artistry of it um, with the creative licence, but but not get too panicked about the details. I think as long as people know the difference between fact and fiction, there's not an issue. It's when that becomes blurred that there is an issue, which we do see a lot of the time, where people watch a film or a television series and take that as fact without doing the research themselves.
2: Yeah, I think because my gateway into history, into the history world, into his historical locations like Kiva, because it came through popular culture, um, I, I, I do find it very easy to separate historical facts from historical fiction. I love historical um, facts as pure as I possibly can get it in
0: um, but also as messy as I
2: possibly can get it as well. I like I like complicated. <laughs> um, Rob Roy comes, is
0: another one, uh, obviously. Yeah, uh, but
2: when it comes to historical fiction, I like trash. I'm afraid. <laughs> I unashamedly love rubbish.
0: I'm getting ready to uh, be honored by having Alexander Larman on the podcast. I think in the next I'm month happy. or so, his books on the Windsors are Wonderful, and it made me think of The King's Speech and, and what a terrific movie uh, that is. Um, which figure in English and British history represents the most consequential premature death?
1: Mm. Arthur. Arthur's such a good shout. Yeah. yeah, it has to be Prince Arthur, Henry Prince Arthur. Henry VIII's older brother who died before him. Yeah. But what would have happened if Henry VIII had never come to the throne That's... I often
2: think how you know when would the when would the Reformation have hit you know would there have been a break with Rome when would that have been would he have had a child with Catherine would the mm-hmm. Tudor dynasty have been this mm-hmm. unending mm-hmm. you know fruitful one um yeah, so many what if
0: Henry V was my choice when I had to answer these same questions. Um, What do you think, who, excuse me, who do you think is the most overrated person in British history? And I will tell you, if you hadn't listened to any of my podcasts, which is perfectly fine, you're very busy people, that Susanna Lipscomb said it was Queen Elizabeth I. And I thought Tracy Borman was going to have an aneurysm.
2: (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
1: Controversial i you are going with that
0: yeah
2: i am i'm gonna go with it and this is not because i dislike elizabeth i adore her i'm absolutely fascinated by her but i'm not fascinated by gloriana mm. i'm fascinated by the woman and unfortunately we particularly at a primary and maybe even a secondary level only ever get to explore gloriana the virgin queen the myth um image yeah exactly the image the you you know perpetual youth mask which never really existed and actually everything's far far more messier than that far more complicated far more interesting so my my answer comes with a caveat that it's the that it's the myth of Elizabeth that's overrated um and actually the real Elizabeth is far more interesting
1: um so yeah I can't agree on Elizabeth because I love her too much. But (laughs) what you're saying, but I would say Henry VIII. My goodness, no! Give the voices back to the people around him, to the women around him, to his wives. Give the agency back to them. We're bored of hearing his story. It's time for her story. Gosh, that's great, isn't
0: it? (laughs) But how? How if Henry VIII? I mean, what's the What's the quote about the devil? If he didn't exist, you'd have to invent him or something. I forget who said oh, yeah. that. I mean, he Henry... needs to
1: exist. He's, you know, he's an important part of history, but he's been done to death. And I'm far more interested now in the people around him who were enacting change rather than him, his his grumpy self.
0: It's time to sit down.
1: Okay. It's time to <laughs> sit back, Henry.
0: <laughs> what about Richard the Lionheart?
1: Oh, mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah, good he's a, yeah, he's a good candidate. He's sort of a part of real British folklore almost here, yeah. I think, in terms of how important he's seen as being. He's almost like a mythical figure, I think, um here. But, that, yeah, it's an interesting candidate, I would say. Yeah,
0: You're listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. We have a few more minutes with Dr. Owen Emerson and Kate McCaffrey of Ever Castle in Kent in Great Britain. It is a beautiful, beautiful place and. And you, I don't know, is it at Evercastle on Twitter? Yes,
1: yes. it's just at Evercastle. Yeah,
0: please follow. It's it's beautiful pictures, constant pictures, wonderful speakers and visitors. It's a terrific Twitter account, for lack of a better term. Who do you think is the most underrated person in English history? I say Henry the First only because I'm predictable.
1: Yeah, Henry the First is a good one. Um, underrated.
0: It doesn't have to be a monarch; it could be.
1: Okay. Oh gosh, it's underrated person. It's funny, isn't it? I think I think it, obviously our specialty being around the Tudor era—that's when my, my mind goes to straight away. Um, I, I often think of Lady Jane Grey. I know you mentioned Nicola Towers' incredible book on her. Um, I think she's a figure who we know so little about still, but it's one that there's a lot more to explore there. But on that same vein, and also following Nicola's amazing books, I would say Margaret Beaufort is someone who always
0: fascinates
1: Mm. me. She's been that kind of love or hate figure, I think, which she's been painted out to be. And as the sort of matriarch of the Tudor dynasty, I think she is underrated or is often painted in purely one light, which is usually negative. And I think she's really fascinating and multifaceted. So maybe I'd say Margaret Beaufort.
0: Yeah, just real quick, she is.
1: She's the mother of Henry VII, um, and so the grandmother of Henry VIII, and yeah, the founder of the Tudor dynasty in many ways.
2: Yes, yeah, I I would agree with both of those. I think they're really candidates. Um, Mine definitely isn't the most underrated person in uh, history. but sticking with the Tudor theme, mm-hmm. because that's where we yeah, mm-hmm. are employed, <laughs> um, Anna Cleves. Oh, yeah. Everything you know about
0: Anna Cleves
2: is wrong. And she is fascinating.
0: Is she, she lived at the castle. Is that right? She did. Yeah. She,
2: she owned Tiva, um, or rather she rented Tiva for 17 years from the Crown. Um, and I think she is a fabulous, very interesting individual. Um, and I really love to see how she carved out an existence for herself in the confines of a very sort of
0: meager um, allowance.
2: Yeah.
0: She, uh, to me, she hit the lottery. Like, yeah, it I didn't like, work out, but
2: still. Yeah, I guess it, de- it de- depends what you think the jackpot is. You know, she, she had always been bred to be a queen. And therefore, the terms in which she won her lottery were Henry's and not hers. Mm. So, you know, and all of the largesse that she got from Henry were contingent on her not returning to her homeland and never marrying again. So I don't think she was necessarily able to fulfill fulfill any of her family or her ambitions. Um, But she did the best by the, the lot that she was given.
0: You wonder what she actually looked like? (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, I th-
2: I, th- I think she was fairly good looking. Um, certainly, those around her thought she was. And again, this is why I say a lot of what we know about Anne of is just rubbish. Um, uh, why know, do you uh, think
0: Henry VIII was so repelled?
2: Um I if think that's he, the right term. Yeah, no, it is. Uh, I think she didn't know who he was when he walked in in disguise at Rochester during their first meeting. She was believing she would be meeting Henry later um on in her travels and he decided to spring upon her um and i think for the very first time in his life he got an honest uh reaction as to how (laughs) fat ugly and bloated he was um because she had no idea who he was and i think she in that moment became his mirror um and he hated it and therefore decided that she was fat smelly
0: and ugly is that what happens these days too i I believe yeah (laughs) Yeah. we have reached the point on the leaders and legends podcast where we ask the same five questions of all of our guests owen and kate are you ready ready do you want to go ladies first on all of these questions
1: absolutely i'll take the reins
0: kate what was your first job
1: My first job, hilariously, was actually here at Heber Castle. I did work experience here as a 16-year-old, and then I stayed on to be employed as a steward and a guide in the castle. Uh, Then I went away to do my degrees and came back in my current capacity as a curator, and I have never left in a way, I suppose you could say. This place is is within me very much.
0: Beautiful. Owen?
2: Uh, My first job was in a clothes shop
0: at the local airport at Heathrow or which one no Gatwick Gatwick
2: yeah yeah
0: number two what was your first concert
1: so I can't actually remember my first concert but the first concert I remember being really excited about was a Taylor Swift concert when I was about thirteen. And I'm a big Swifty, just to announce that to everyone. And um, So, yeah, it was the Taylor Swift concert that I went to see with my best friend and my mum, and it's still one of my happy memories.
0: Imagine if Henry had seen Taylor Swift. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Owen? case is really cool. I went to see Elaine Page
2: singing the songs of Edith Piaf when <laughs> I was nine years old, which tells you pretty much everything. <laughs> you need to know about what a nerd I want. That's <laughs> iconic. <laughs>
0: Number three, okay, these last three are difficult, but that's okay. No grades included. Number three, if you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you recommend?
1: Now, this is a really difficult one, but I'm going to go with um a book that was edited by Professor Susanna Lipskin, who've mentioned, and also Helen Carr, who've also mentioned, which is called What is History Now? And it's in the image of E.H. Carr, who actually was Helen's great-grandfather, his seminal work, uh, What is History, in the 20th century, and they've they've refreshed it. It's a selection of essays uh, from a range of amazing historians, and it examines the question of what history means to us today with all the new lenses that we look on it uh, through our modern eyes, and I think it's a must-read for anyone who's interested in history uh, in general.
0: I would love to have... Professor Carr, on the podcast, mm-hmm. especially because I don't obviously I don't know her. I think I've reached out to her once and maybe didn't get a response, but that's okay. But that was before uh, Dr. Limsko came on, because her book on John of Gaunt yeah. would ha- would have uh, references to my thesis subject Sir Thomas Erpingham, because he was indentured to Gaunt in 1380. So it would be interesting to talk to her about that. And the, who's the other one? Jane Ridley. I read her biography of George V. It was superb. I'd love to have her on actually read, uh, bought her biography of uh, Edward the seventh and haven't gotten to it yet. But I will forgive me Owen. And my book, uh,
2: the Life and Death of Anne Boleyn by Eric
0: Ives Uh, is
2: widely um, seen as sort of the canonical book on Anne Boleyn. And things have moved on quite a bit since his interventions, which were sort of revolutionary in, in their time. Um, but it's kind of the, the, the Bible still here at Hebrew, isn't it? Definitely. Um, so yeah, that's my
0: must read
2: recommendation.
0: Number four, if you could witness any event in history, be there in person as it happens, which event would you choose?
1: Again, a really tough one, but I'm going to go with Anne Boleyn's coronation, uh, where she was actually six months pregnant with Elizabeth I, although obviously they didn't know that at the time, and she was the first and only uh, Queen Consort to be crowned with St. Edward's Crown, which was usually reserved for monarchs only. So I think that day was probably the pinnacle of Anne's triumph, and I would have loved to have witnessed the pomp and ceremony surrounding it.
2: That's a good one. I would come to Heber Castle for Christmas 1526. Um, all the balloons were here. It's widely understood as the time in which Anne decided to do the unthinkable and say yes to Henry VIII. And I just want to know what all those conversations were like here. I'd love to be a fly on a wall, even better a guest at the table. Um, <laughs> and I'd just love to know
0: what was being said. And Yes to sex or yes to marriage? Yes and to marriage. marriage, definitely not sex.
1: made him wait yeah she made him wait (laughs) (laughs)
2: poor
0: henry (laughs) last one if you could have dinner with anyone living today two hours off the record just to chat whom would you choose
1: so i'm going to go with a really left field answer here but i'm a huge fan of liverpool football club so i'm going to say jürgen klopp who is liverpool's manager and who is a figure who I would love to grill his brains about what's going on at the moment behind the scenes. Uh, so I'm going to go with Yogi with
2: Amazing. I would go for Rufus Wainwright. He's one of my favourite you know, the writers and
0: opera writers and all-round genius. If you could have dinner with Kate or Megan, whom would you choose?
2: <laughs>
1: oh, Megan. <laughs> I think Megan would be more fun. Definitely. <laughs>
2: Get all
1: the tea. All you? the Whereas gossip. Kate would be very, like, sensible and reserved. But... Would. She wouldn't give anything
2: away, but Megan no. would
0: spill the secrets. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, The McGinley's Golden Ace Inn and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our guests have been Dr. Owen Emerson and Kate McCaffrey. They work and run and are the stewards of the beautiful Ever Castle. Thank you so much for your time. I know you stayed late over there in England. I love the conversation. You were delightful. I'm very grateful.
2: Oh, thank you so much for having us. It's been an absolute thrill.
1: Yes, yeah, it's been a real honor. So, thank you for having us on.
0: Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at Strategies dot com. That's robert at Strategies dot com.